Before I read that text, I'd like to just take a moment. I want to uh, share what I read earlier this week that uh, was quite sad to me as I thought about what this father must have gone through. As some of you know, some of the worst and most painful moments a parent can go through is when your child that you have invested in heavily in many different levels at some point chooses to withdraw from you and reject you. And this parent heard their teenage son say these words, I am so tired of living in this prison. If I have to be in at 9 p.m., I'm leaving. Nobody else's parents treat them the way you treat me. Tom's mom said I could live with them if I wanted to. And if you lock the door, like you said, then I'm out of here. I don't care. I'll do anything. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. You can't make me do anything. Just get off my case. Can you imagine the heartache, the pained, uh, pained expression that that parent must feel? To have a son reject one's loving leadership, choosing to develop loyalties that are not your family, but someone else. Some of you may have known that painful experience yourself. Some of you know what it is to have a loved one reject you and reject your love. Perhaps your spouse abandoned you. Perhaps that spouse broke the vows that they had made, exchange, promising lasting devotion, and yet they've walked away from you. Others may have experienced the pain of investing in a friendship, and that friend was someone that you stood by and you helped them through a very difficult time in life and all the challenges and hardships they went through, only to see that friend go in another direction away from you. That is the kind of pain, the kind of heart anguish that are behind the words of what we're reading in this portion of Scripture in Galatians chapter 4. If you have your Bible open, I'd like to read these verses to you from Galatians 4, verses 12 to 20, because the Apostle Paul is dealing here in this passage and in this book, really, with the pain of spiritual abandonment or spiritual defection on the part of those that he loved so dearly and the church that he started years earlier. I'd like to read verses 12 to 20 in the fourth chapter of Galatians in which Paul says this, as he continues to appeal to them, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time, and that which was a a trial to you in my bodily condition, but you did not despise or loathe. But you received me as an angel of God, even Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out in order that you may seek them. 
But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I'm present with you, my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed with you. What a strong, poignant passage here as the Apostle Paul addresses these people he loves and he's reacting to a reversal in a relationship, a close connection that was made that was so strong and so supportive and now it's the exact opposite of that. And in the early days of this particular group of people there gathered in these different churches of Galatia, there was a deep caring that they expressed to the Apostle Paul, verses 14 and 15. They received him gladly. They gained so much from his ministry among them. But now they're acting as if, in verse 16, he's their enemy. It's baffling. And he's confused by their rejection of him. He's trying to figure out this loyalty they have now to these false teachers is just so difficult for him to comprehend these, diff- these teachers are promoting a false gospel, a false gospel that emphasizes all these legalistic rules, all these outward regulations that they're adding to Christ. And so Paul is facing a very difficult dilemma. Just like that father who hears their son make those statements, what do you do? What do you say? What's gonna, are you going to use logic? Are you going to sort of try to throw at them all these logical reasons as to why they're doing it? It doesn't make any sense. Paul's past that now. He's made a number of statements. He's tried to talk about theological history and arguments. He's done some uh, talking from Old Testament teaching and things. He's done a number of approaches here to try to deal with those who are involved in spiritual defection. And so now what is he going to do? Look at verse 19. He says, My little children. Paul, at this point now, He's not approaching them with logic. He's not approaching them with all sorts of theological arguments. He's now approaching them, appealing to them from his heart. He is speaking for one who loves them dearly. He's telling them, listen, you know that I love you, and I knew that you loved me. He's going down that road. And what Paul is doing is he's taking a moment to review his own personal gospel ministry. He's saying, I want you to reflect on what it really happened when we were there years ago. He says, I want you to remember, it wasn't too long ago that I tried to help you understand how the gospel of grace opened up many opportunities to see our hearts united together with each other and your hearts united with God through Jesus Christ. So he's reminding them of the benefits of this gospel ministry that he, he invested in them not too long ago. And he offers several reflections on his own gospel ministry in a personal way to these people. So that one of three things I want to think about in his personal gospel ministry. Number one, personal gospel ministry is adaptable and flexible. Adaptable and flexible within the framework of unchanging truth. You see, the gospel has the power to change us on the inside something that this false gospel could not do. It was all about the externals. A true gospel changes us on the inside. It frees us from the need to gain approval by self-improvement. And the gospel radically changed this guy years ago named Saul 
the Pharisee. He was also known as Saul, the zealous rule keeper. He was the best of the best in keeping all these rules. If you look at verse 14 of the first chapter of this book, he talks about the fact that he, he was excelling in this area of all these rule keepers. But now, he says, he turned his back on all that. He turned his back on trying hard to measure up to a long list of all these kind of ceremonial rules that he was involved in years ago. And at one time, he prided himself on maintaining separation and some sort of distance from anybody who didn't keep those rules along with him. But because the gospel changed his identity, because the gospel changed his motivations, because the gospel changed his heart, Paul was able to adapt his lifestyle to that of, of all people, a non-Jew, a Gentile. And so look what he says there in verse 12. This is a radically amazing statement. Verse 12, look at it. I beg you, brethren, be, brethren, become like I am, for I also have become as you are. <laughs> That's amazing. If you understand this man's background, if you understand what he grew up with and what his passions were, and you understand that he has become like them, that is pagan, people who are non-Jewish in their orientation and their practices, he says, listen, I became as you are. And he says, that's really the, the evidence of this heart's desire that Paul said that we read just moments ago in 1 Corinthians 9, in which he explained, I have become all things to all men, all people, that I might by some means, all means, that I might save some. That includes those who are without the law. That means people who did not grow up with the Old Testament, who did not hear and read all of the law of God in written form, that is, Gentiles. He says, I'm coming and approach them. I'll become like them, but I'm not going to abandon all the law of God. I'm going to follow the law of Christ, which says, I love you, and I'm going to try to win you to Christ because you are without the truth. Years ago, in the middle of the 1800s, a fellow by the name of Hudson Taylor had a strong burden in his heart for people who did not know Christ, who had never heard of Christ, and who lived in an area where there was no one nearby telling them of Christ. Now, people had gone out as missionaries. By that time, middle of 1800, there were many missionaries reaching people on the coastlands. But Hudson Taylor had a burden to say, I want to go beyond just the coast where, the, where all the harbors are and where all the shipping is going on. I want to go to the people who live away from that area, to the inland parts of countries who, where there's no one giving a witness to Christ. And so Hudson Taylor, burdened for the hundreds of thousands of unsaved Chinese people, moved into Shanghai. And he did something that was quite radical for his day. He went as a British gentleman, and the British Empire, by the way, was influencing everything around the world. He, he just dismissed all of his natural bringing, upbringing, his culture, and he adopted the native dress, including the hairstyle of the people he's trying to reach there in Shanghai. That includes growing his hair very long to a pigtail and adopting their kind of unique uh, clothing, which to the other mission experts of his day made him the one who received so much criticism. What are you doing? You're selling out to these people. And he was criticized every which way. But Hudson Taylor was passionate about becoming all things to all men. 
that by all means he might save some. He's really just following in the steps of Jesus, wasn't he? Jesus, whose heart for gospel ministry was evident in his willingness to what? Lay aside all of his rightful privileges of glorious majesty, all of his divine rights. And what did he do? He immersed himself in the human cultures, in a world in which he sought to minister to people who were lost. And so I raised the question this morning as I've meditated on Paul and his heart for personal gospel ministry. How flexible am I? How flexible are we when it comes to opportunities, finding opportunities for gospel ministry in the life of somebody who doesn't know Christ? Does your desire to win acceptance from other people compel you to primarily live for yourself and you're wrapped up in your own pursuit of things that you think will give you significant meaning because you're still trying to find that in things other than the gospel? Or have you found the gospel to give you a heart that is more willing to bend and flex for other people when it comes to the use of your time, when it comes to the use of your money and your assets, when it comes to the use of, of, of finding some hobby that you enjoy that you can share with somebody else who's not a believer, and in that bridge you can find an opportunity to tell your story. Find out what their story is. Maybe you say, well, you don't understand. I'm a busy person. I've got to have so much screen time. I've got to be on my little gadgets here. I've got to have that time. Are you willing to flex a little bit on that or find that to be an opportunity to share that with somebody else your interest in some sort of video game is really a springboard into telling your story? How about your food choices? Even the books you read. Let's be clear here. The Apostle Paul, indeed, adjusted his lifestyle in a major way. In the area of food regulations, in the area of various ritual washings, you know, he just said, I'm just going to lay that stuff aside. That's not important anymore to me. I'm not trying to gain merit before God. I have the gospel of Christ, and therefore, I have found acceptance through Jesus Christ. Therefore, now, I am able to go into sort of blend in with other people who are different than I am because I have a burden for them. And so what did he do? As a Jewish man, the Apostle Paul, who had the most incredibly high level of training as a Jewish person, he went into the homes of Gentiles. That was shocking. Radically. Radical. And so we find that his approach to witnessing the Jews, indeed it was different, he would approach Jewish people a certain way based on their understanding, their worldview. He would quote scriptures. He would use the Hebrew scriptures with them. He would appeal to them, saying, quoting those verses and talking about the Messiah. But then he would also approach the Gentiles differently. Look at the way he talked in, 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 in Athens. He would approach them arguing from creation and the fact that they were religious. And he speaks to what they're dealing with. He tried to approach whoever he was witnessing to in keeping with who they were and their understanding their framework. But... Despite all these attempts to try to get on their level, as it were, Paul never, ever, despite his sensitivity to their differences, he never, ever watered down the message. He never compromised the gospel. He would, nonetheless, offend intellectuals, Gentile intellectuals, who said, oh, come on, this stuff about some guy on a cross, give me a break. And to those who were 
Jewish and who are trying to improve themselves and who are so religious, he's pointing them to a relationship with Jesus Christ. They found themselves offended at what he said. But what we found in the Apostle Paul, and what I'm asking God to do in my heart, and what I'm asking him to do in your hearts, is to have a compassionate heart that will not compromise on the gospel. To find those two married together is a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. Because what it frees us up to be flexible to minister to all kinds of kind of people. Let me move on to our second point here. When looking at personal gospel ministry, it also is providentially governed by God. Providentially governed by God. When Paul reviews to, in, with his readers here, he's going back to remembering the time he spent with them, and he's thinking about the ministry he had among the Galatians, and he thinks, now, I remember the, I had a plan of what I was going to do at that time in my life, and he looks back on it, and he says, well, whatever that strategy was, he says, God clearly had another plan. <laughs> and you can be sure that God's plan was not anything Paul would have said, this is the way I think it's best to reach these folks in Galatia. Because it's nothing what Paul would have wanted or wished for, believe me. Look what he says there in the text. He talks about the fact that verse 13, he's a bodily illness. He was sick. His first encounter with the people of Galatia took place because he got sick. Now, I'm not going to sit here and try to explain to you what kind of sickness he was. There are many different theories. Some people say malaria. Some people said he has a significant eye problem. And we understand why they would say that because he talks in the end of the book, look how large letters I'm writing. He talks about the fact you would gouge your eyes out and give them to me. So some people said, well, perhaps that was part of his problem. Maybe he had some sort of awful infection and stuff coming out. Who knows? I don't know what his problem was. We're not told specifically. But whatever it was, verse 14 would indicate, based on the technical language he uses here, it would indicate there was some sort of repulsion, some sort of yuck factor in looking at him that would have clearly made them disgusted to be around him. So much so that the word there in that verse talks about and again, based on the assumption of his audience there, again, many of these pagans, many of these Gentiles, along with the Greeks, assumed that disease and different forms of deformity were signs of displeasure from the gods. So here is Paul showing up. He's got this disease. He looks awful. There's maybe pus coming. Who knows? I mean, I don't know what was wrong going on with him. But, it was, but many people of that day would have seen someone like that and they would have spit on the ground, not on the person, but spit on the ground as a way of saying, oh, that's disgusting. You have clearly been cursed by the gods because of something you did. So Paul says, look, I appear on the scene. I got all this awful health issues going on. And what did he say? The amazing thing about his ailment was that God used this as an opportunity to create this bond between Paul the sick one and these people in these churches of Galatia. Paul was providentially hindered from traveling anywhere else for a while. He was stuck there. It wasn't part of his plan, but it was God's plan. And these people welcomed him, and they welcomed the gospel message that he brought to them. I came across a great quote. It's in your notes, but you lack one word. Here it is. Philip Ryken says this, Paul's infirmity became God's opportunity. God's I'm sorry, Paul's infirmity became God's 
opportunity. That's an incredible principle. Paul's sufferings became an open door of ministry. And the gospel, by the way, and let's be clear on this, folks, the gospel does not promise that Christians are immune from sickness. It does not promise that Christians are immune from suffering. That's the false gospel that you can easily tune into on the channels of all sorts of people on your television. The gospel promises, Romans 8, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. What's His purpose? His purpose is to make His people conform to the image of Christ. Now, I know I've used, I don't know how many times, illustration of Johnny Erickson Tata, but I keep coming back to this woman again and again as an illustration of someone who had a plan for life that was totally hijacked by God, and that plan is nothing that she would have ever selected. But let me tell you something, that illness, that challenge physically that she has had to deal with has turned into an opportunity that God's given her that's incredible. Some of you may not know the story, but Johnny Erickson Tata broke her neck in a diving accident in 1967 as a teenager. And ever since then, for the past 46 years, she has been living life as a quadriplegic. And she relies on a lot of people around her every day to do so many basic essentials of life. And she gets around with a power wheelchair. And she testifies again and again of the fact that her physical challenges have become God's opportunities for ministry. Let me just share this brief quote with you from one of her writings in which she says this. She says, I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair, my wheelchair, to heaven. She says, I know that's not correct theologically, but she says, I hope to bring it there and put it in a little corner of heaven and then to my new perfect glorified body, I'll be standing on grateful glorified legs. I'll stand next to my Savior holding his nail-pierced hands. And I'll say, thank you, Jesus. And, we, and he will know that I mean it because he knows me. And he'll recognize me from the fellowship we are now sharing in his sufferings. And then I will say this, listen to this. Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that wheelchair, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. She got it. She understands this principle bigger than I'll ever understand it. And it's huge. And then she says, then the real ticker tape parade of praise will begin and all the earth will join in the party. And at that point, Christ will open up our eyes to the great fountain of joy in his heart for us beyond all that we ever experienced on earth. And when we're able to stop laughing and crying, the Lord Jesus really will wipe away all our tears. My friend, she understood that her brokenness, her challenge physically, 
has opened up a door of opportunity. Do you know that she is the president of Johnny and Friends, a worldwide ministry helping churches help those who have physical disabilities all around the world? Incredible what God is using her to do even now. In some ways, again, it's pointing back to Christ. Christ, who has an illustration of the same principle, he was not immune from suffering. He was not spared affliction, people sinning against him, doing heinous things against him unjustly. But his ministry was not ruined because of betrayal. It was not ruined because of people that beat him. It was not ruined because he died by crucifixion. God's plan was to use Jesus' sufferings as a means of providing redemptive sin sacrifice for those who have nothing to offer God to atone for their sins. So that Peter is able to say, as an interpretation of what just happened with Jesus' death, he says, Jesus the Nazarene, who was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. It was part of God's plan. You say, what? Well, I want to scratch my head on that one. Yeah, that's the way God works. God's plans are mysterious. And what may seem to us to be a dead-end situation in life, in the hands of God, becomes a bridge of opportunity into somebody else's life if we trust Him. The grace of God that saved us is the same grace that God gives to work through us and our weaknesses to minister to other people. Did you know that God can use something like a sorrowful miscarriage as an open door for you to minister at some later time to someone who also has suffered the sad loss of a little baby? Did you know that God can open the doors of ministry of that battle that you fought with cancer as an incredible opportunity to share your story and talk about what God's been doing in your heart and life? Have you ever seen the grace of God take your moment of weakness when you were laid off of work and your plans for your career somehow got hijacked and you were therefore laid off and you had all this time on your hands and you began to become aware of other people who are out of work or later on in life when you did get a job back you still cross paths with people who've lost their job and it became a wonderful opportunity to show forth the power of God and his strength using you to tell your story to somebody else so that they might see God in a new light. Have you found that God uses your weaknesses as an open door to show forth his strength? You say, well, there may have been a person in your life who captured your heart and you thought you were madly in love with them and they're the ones that broke up with you, devastated your life. Maybe your career in college didn't go the way you wanted to. Maybe you couldn't go to college. Whatever. I mean, you can list, put in the blank anything you think of as this was awful, this was a disaster, this was a, a dead end in my life. I challenge you. Stay with this text long enough that God opens your eyes to say, you know, this could be an opportunity for you. Somehow, trust God. He can do that to minister to somebody else. Let me tell you my story. Some of you know I've talked in various ways about a ministry I had in Virginia before I came here. 
they were the longest five years of my life. I'm not exaggerating. After the first two years, I could tell because of various issues of people who were not serious about the scriptures and they were thinking that I was the problem because I was trying to just teach the scriptures. I could tell I was swimming upstream big time against a lot of people who I think, looking back, were not even believers, who were part of the church leadership. And so I began to say, God, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. This is a mess. Help me, help me, help me. That's why I get teary-eyed every time I think of that Psalm 40, which I've been memorizing. Man, I was in that pit, folks. I was in that pit. It was a deep pit. I didn't see my way out of it. And so during those three years that I remained there, even though I was ready to go after two, I said, okay, God, I'm not going to just leave here and go to some other mess. I'm going to humble myself and wait till the time you show me. So God, in his amazing wisdom, does what? Takes that West Virginia mountaineer who was preaching in Virginia at a church that was having many, many challenges, used that to refine me and expose my weaknesses teaching me to pray, teaching me to follow God, no matter what people said about me, no matter what they did or did not like me, to be faithful to him no matter what, and he opened up a door of opportunity to minister at this church 20 years ago. I look back and I say, God, I can't understand your ways, but I know that you're the God who can take an infirmity, a problem, a sickness, or whatever it is, a disaster, and you can turn it into an opportunity for ministry. I've seen him do it in my life many times. I hope you'll see it in your life as well. Let me move to my third point here real quickly. My third point here is that personal gospel ministry is not aimed at promoting oneself. When you're out ministering to somebody, it's not all about you. Right? It's not promoting oneself, but it's about proclaiming Christ so that others become more like him. Now we start off in this text, verse 17. Paul makes this contrast here. It's clear that he talks about verse 17, they. Did you catch that? They. Who's he talking about, this group of they? It's the people who are these false teachers, the people who moved in once when he moved out people who we call Judaizers, people who are, again, promoting the keeping of all these laws and regulations. And they have an entirely different approach that they're taking with this group of folks. Verse 17, they eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out in order that, they, that you may seek them. Notice the real goal of what they're doing. They want those who they're ministering to to be those who give their 100% loyalty to them. These false teachers are flattering these people in this church. They're making a big fuss over them to win over their allegiance. And they're clearly trying to dismiss the allegiance to Paul. That's, you know that if you've read the whole book, it's very obvious. Their goal is to make these quote-unquote students dependent upon them. And may I just say to you that one sign of false religion is leaders who use their converts to advance themselves. You know you got yourself a false religion when people are looking for needy people and they draw those needy people to themselves saying, you need to rely on me and now you need to help me accomplish what I want to do. It's all about me. And if you look over at Jude 
16, the 16th verse in the book of Jude, that tiny little epistle there, page 1453 in your pew Bible, you find an interesting description of false teachers. Jude says this, false teachers speak arrogantly, flattering people for what reason? For the sake of gaining an advantage. They will give you compliments, they'll say the right words so that they'll have an advantage over you. They'll use it as a means of gaining their loyalty and their devotion to try to steer you in the direction that's toward disaster. And many cult members come across initially as very loving, caring people. And the first impression, though, will give way eventually, and you'll find that they, they really are involved in manipulation and brainwashing and power control issues. All right, let's switch around and think about Paul. Before Paul was converted, he went by the name Saul, and he primarily lived for himself. And so he compared himself to other people. He would try harder and harder to gain acceptance from his peers and attempt to, to have a, a proper standing acceptance before God. And like other Pharisees, Paul practiced his piety to be seen by these people. And so Saul went to great lengths to impress other people by the level of his performance of these pious deeds. And why was he doing that? Because he's not really serving those people. He's not serving God. He was serving his own need to have people have it be his audience and to have these people be impressed by him. He's looking for them to go, wow, that guy's, ooh, that's, that's Saul, man, look at him. I want to be like him someday. And he's looking for the impressive titles to be given to him and he's in public that they call him all these highfalutin titles to make him feel like he's important. But notice that the gospel of Jesus Christ transformed Paul's self-motivated heart. And the gospel confronted him with his self-achievement religion, and it humbled him to realize that the only way to gain acceptance with God is through faith in Jesus Christ and what Christ has done, who himself has won acceptance before God on our behalf. All on the basis of grace. And the gospel transformed Paul's heart in such a way that when Paul was ministering to those Galatians, he longed for them, verse 12, he longed for them to become like him, not so that he could manipulate them and control them, not so that he could somehow gain the upper hand over them, but why? Look at verse 19. He yearned that they might have Christ formed in them. He's seen the gospel change his heart and life. He wants the same gospel to change their life that they might be like Christ. He didn't want all those members of the Galatians church to become dependent upon him. He wanted them to become dependent on Christ. I just want to make one more comment about verse 19 and I'm done. Look at verse 19. My little children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. Paul is saying, listen folks, the love I have for you is similar to the kind of love a mother would have for children. You Galatian believers, I want you to see this analogy. He says, I experienced pain and anguish years ago when I labored here among you, and now I'm going through that same labor and anguish and pain of my heart because of these fickle believers, you people are all over the map here, and mothers who are undergoing this temporary extreme pain I don't know what it's like. I've never had it. I've been standing beside somebody who three times went through it, but I was helpless in those situations, too much to help her. 
But that labor is a temporary discomfort in order to what? Transition the baby out of the womb into the world so that the baby will become independent of that mother eventually and to grow and mature and move toward healthy adulthood. That's the whole idea. And Paul is longing to see these believers brought to the place where they were treasure the gospel of grace and repent of their foolish attempts to add to the gospel all these ideas to somehow earn their acceptance before God by doing all these things and jumping through the hoops. Now here's the principle here. Discipleship, I am assuring you in light of this verse 19, discipleship, the training of someone around you, spiritually speaking, is a painful process. Don't be surprised by that. People will sometimes follow you and they'll, they'll say, oh, that's great, I love that, that's a great principle, oh, I'd like to put that in practice, and they'll get to the point where they'll show growth and encouragement and you'll feel so fired up and you're so excited about that, and there'll come some times where people will what? They'll have a difficult time letting go of some point in their life, some erroneous assumption, and they're not going to enjoy the freedom they have in Christ. And that can be extremely painful. It will hurt your heart. It's like they'll step on your heart when they go back to making foolish choices again. And some people will revert back to their old ways at times. They'll turn on you. They'll question you. And sometimes they'll even forsake you. Some people will resent you when you plead with them and show them in the scriptures and when you tell them the truth and you confront them with their sinful attitude, you confront them with that sinful action and you show them and say, listen here, man, don't be going down that road anymore. Look at the gospel. Look at Christ. And some of them may say to you, my friend, get out of my face. Let me do what I want to do. And I would just say to you, my friend, Ultimately, time will tell whether that heart was truly changed by the gospel. But our responsibility, like Paul is showing us here, like Christ has done for me a million times, is show that patient love. Show that compassionate, grace-filled love that says, listen here, I am going through birth pangs. I want you to become like Christ. It's going to be painful and it's going to hurt. But the grace that I've received from Christ is the grace that now I'm going to show to you because I'll tell you something. Great God has been patient with me, and God will be patient with you. Just get back to following Jesus and enjoying the gospel and who you are in Christ. It is worth every bit of pain you feel and go through in order to see them enjoy Christ and the gospel. Let's pray. Before I pray, I'd like to just ask for you to think in your own heart and life, is there some chapter of your life that you wish was never written, that your story and your life uh, narrative has not gone the way that you would have planned for it to go. And there are some dark chapters, there are some disappointing developments that have happened, and maybe you still are agonizing and you're frustrated toward God and you sort of are still trying to get him to explain to you why all these things happen and you're, you're not in a good place on that, on that area of your life. Would you be willing to surrender that to God today? Would you be willing to take a step of faith and look at Christ and see what Christ endured? See how the gospel brought apart suffering in his life for the benefit of other people. And Would you be willing to surrender that to Christ and say, Lord Jesus, this awful 
difficult chapter of my life, I'm going to trust that you can use it somehow to turn it into an opportunity for ministry to somebody. You can use this as a point of weakness in my life to show forth the strength that can be found in the gospel. Would you tell the Lord that? Would you make that, that surrender to him today? Father, I have no idea what kind of sad and sorry and painful chapters different ones of us have gone through. Some of them are still silent. They've never even been spoken of. But Father, I know there are many people out there who are going through similar, if not the same, types of horrendous situations that think that nobody can understand them and that there's no hope for them. And they assume that there's no hope, at least from God, because they assume that God has rejected them. That's why these things have happened to them. Lord, I pray that you would help those of us here today to treasure Christ and the gospel so much that we're willing to trust you to see that you can use us, Lord, in our weaknesses. You can use those areas of our weakness and and sufferings and difficulties and afflictions. You can use them as a bridge into somebody else's life so that we can point them to you. And Lord, it is my prayer that you would do that. I thank you for the way you've done it in my life. And I thank you for what, the way you can do that in the lives of all of us here today if we repent from our pride, from our stubbornness, and from our sinful anger toward you, and if we surrender in faith and trust in Christ, and the gospel can set us free to minister. I pray that you would do these things. And to the glory of your great name, I ask it. Amen.